Today, we would like to present to you a repeat of a podcast featuring Selby Dunham, first broadcast in 2020. This is a tribute to an individual who has impacted the Bighorn community and the Coachella Valley in ways that few people have. Her life, example of giving back, her courage and inspiration are examples to all of us how one person can touch so many others. So now the original story in her own words, a celebration of a life well lived. Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with amazing people with extraordinary stories. This edition is brought to you with the generosity and support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wines. I'm Marty Lockman, and our guest today is Selby Dunham. Selby's story is full of twists and turns that not only affected her as an individual, but has had an impact on our entire community. Hers is a story of personal fortitude and giving back to her community, which personifies the motto, pay it forward. We welcome Selby, and as we always do, let's start at the beginning, which started in San Antonio, Texas. Well, thanks, Marty. Um, as you said, I was, I was born in San Antonio, Texas. My father was in the Air Force, and uh, we left shortly thereafter. I say we, I have an older brother who's four years older than I am, and uh, my mother was a housewife. And so he, uh, he was transferred from San Antonio to Europe, and we lived in Holland. And then from Holland to Alabama, then to South Carolina, then he was stationed uh, in El Toro, or at El Toro, Marine Base. And I was the ripe old age of six. <laughs> that's, that's quite a life up to that time. <laughs> so, and I do remember certain parts of my childhood, which were always fun-filled, of course. But um, living in Dana Point is where we landed when uh, he was stationed at El Toro. And I'm not quite sure how the transformation from the Air Force to the Marines went. But I think the inner transfer, you know, military transfers happened. He was a fighter pilot in the Korean War and actually shot down um, several planes. So he was well decorated. And then he became a flight instructor with the Marine Corps. So that's what what I remember and lived a, uh, we moved to Dana Point and lived really a, a carefree, fun time. This was obviously in the 60s and they, you know, the harbor wasn't there, it was Charlie's Cove. I mean, we had just a, a fabulous uh, time. And um, so at that time, living in Dana Point, he then got stationed to Japan. But we decided, uh, or the family decided, <laughs> to stay here. So my mom and my brother and I stayed in Dana Point. And uh, while he was gone, I started riding horses. So I think my mother thought this would be a good thing for the kids. My brother and I both did. And they had a stables out at El Toro. So we, uh, he, she took us out there. And it was, it was a, a great thing. I mean, what girl doesn't want to ride a horse, right? So uh, we ended up actually uh, continuing on riding horses, my brother and I, and even my mother to some extent. And so at that time, 
I, I was riding, and I remember my first horse was root beer. And why I can remember that, I don't know, but it obviously was significant. And uh, at one point in time, I'd been riding a little bit, and apparently I wasn't taking it seriously enough for either the instructor, my mother, whomever, who was investing not only money, but time. So I got a little talking to about you either, you know, shape up or you're not going to ride horses anymore. Well, that, that I remember that. And so I, I started riding uh, more seriously. I mean, at the age of seven or eight, right. But as seriously as I could. And, and, and that led me into, um, riding horses and showing quarter horses uh, until I was, uh, until I went away to college because I couldn't do both. I had to give up my horse. But I think that part of growing up, it taught me a lot of responsibility. And while I was having a lot of fun as well, but the horses really were significant in my life and, uh, and part of my growing up. And, um, so I, I look at that time, as, and again, a very fun time. There's a question for you. You're moving around so much, friends and stuff like that. How does that work for up until you were six? You're in various different places. You have to make friends all the time. I would think this time, too, is a time of stability and, and being in one place for a longer period of time. And the horse thing, I would think, would be something that's, uh, that you didn't have before that. Exactly. And, and, and true, when you're, when you're moving around so much, you know, looking back, we were all military families and we all moved around. And I think that enabled me, you make friends immediately and kids tend to do that anyway. So, you know, they, they just, whoever's there, they'll play with. But I think having that stability and the horse, I knew, I knew that my horse was always there and, uh, you know, a girl and a horse, they tend to have a very tight bond, which I, I did, and I was very fortunate to have it. And I think it, it kept me out of some trouble, too. <laughs> Not that I didn't get into <laughs> enough on my own, but, but I'm sure it did. And, and um, I, I, in fact, I know it did because I was too busy. I was too busy with a right. horse and, and with you know, doing other things, too. So now you've been showing horses. You've been doing all of this now. Well, in, in between there, and this is an important part of my life, um, my parents, my dad came back from Japan and um, my parents had separated when I was 11. And a few months after that, my father was killed in a car accident. And we had moved to Tustin at the time, which is in Orange County. It's near Irvine, uh, around that area. And um, so that was devastating to me. Absolutely devastating. In fact, I remember thinking on, on this conversation, I remember my mom saying, there, I have something really bad to tell you. And the first thought is I'm going to have to sell my horse. That's the first thought in my brain. I was 11 years old. Uh, and she said, no, your father's been in a, in a bad accident and he's in the hospital. My second reaction was, oh, oh good, because I know the doctors will fix him. I just knew they would, but of course they couldn't. And uh, so he was 42 years old, and I was 11, and I lost my father. And it was uh, obviously for for any child to to have that happen, but it was uh, a huge, significant part of my life. So um, so from then on, uh, my mother went to work, 
And here I, my brother and I, and he was four years older, my brother and I were um, at home a lot. Um, and I kind of took over as sort of the pseudo mom in a way, because my mom, she, she wasn't, she wasn't real solid, uh, you know, a lot of things had happened and she wasn't real solid. So I, uh, I took over a lot of responsibility again, um, looking back, you know, I would clean the house and I would, you know, make my brother's lunch and I'd make my own lunch and I would do a lot of things like that. Um, and like I said, looking back and thinking, wow, I was pretty young to be doing that sort of stuff. But at the time you do what's necessary yeah, absolutely. just to get to the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, and in high school was very involved with sports. You know, I played four varsity sports, um, and I, and still showed my horse too, not quite as much, but still showed and, and did all that. And then going on to college, I sold the horse and, um, I played volleyball in college, but not very well. Where, what college? I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and, uh, loved it there. Absolutely loved it. But I met a guy that I ended up marrying and having my son with and, and getting divorced from as well in a very short span of time. Uh, but so I came back to Orange County and then I ended up graduating from Cal State Fullerton. That's a lot of, of things happening and a lot of responsibility. Again, these are all born out of necessity for most of us. Life doesn't, life just happens. There's no rhyme or reason. There's twists and turns as we talk about, but you've lived a full life and you're just finished college now. Mm -hmm. Um, you have a child. Um, this is still, I mean, what I'm impressed about in our conversation so far, you view all of this as a very positive life that you've had. And I have great respect for that because with all of these traumatic experiences, um, you still, I mean, you weren't a victim. You, you were a survivor. Right. And that um, serves you well throughout your entire life. And one of the things while I was in high school, um, I got involved with our church group uh, at the Presbyterian Church in Tustin. And that really, really set um, a solid platform for me and a place to really go and, and actually have a great time because I was so involved with the church group, with the youth group there, and along with the other activities that I was doing. I mean, to, to be involved with such great people and with the church, that really, yes, that really, really helped me. And, and uh, growing up, I was raised in the Catholic church because my father was Catholic. But then sort of wandered, drifted off after he died and, um, you know, just went through some things, but came back to this wonderful Presbyterian church and the faith. And uh, God really did help me and guide me and, and help me through my, my entire life, actually. So after, well, when I was going to college, going through college, I worked, because um, I, I put myself through college, worked at the Ancient Mariner Rusty Pelican restaurants. And have to say, it was the most fun. Loved, loved every minute of it. And people, some, some people can do it and some people can't. But waitressing, I just loved. I think the social aspect of it, the, it was just fun. Everybody that I waited on was there to have a good time. You don't go out to dinner or you don't go to have cocktails to have a bad time. So that, that part was really, really fun. And while doing so, 
I'm kind of going through my life here. While doing so, um, I met a man that uh, introduced me to golf. So that is kind of my intro into golf. So you had played all a lot of sports before then, but golf was never one of them. Golf was never one of them. My father played golf. And so looking back right now, I think, wow, that would have been really fun for me and for him had he lived for us to play golf. That, that would have been really fun to do that together. Um, so anyway, so I started playing golf when I was 30. So now we're up to 30. Now in between there, I did, I have my son, Travis, and single mom, and started playing golf when I was a single mom. And, uh, and then uh, got married. And uh, I have to say, we moved to Corona Del Mar. And my son and I had a very wonderful life and with a wonderful man. And uh, Tom was doing some business are going to do some business with R.D. Hubbard. So here, here it all comes around. Um, and so I, I started playing and actually was pretty good at it to start with. I took a lot of lessons and uh, started playing in, in like Southern California tournaments. And then graduated to the uh, some national amateur tournaments, and all the while uh, raising a child, and uh, and he was very involved with sports as well. He didn't want to play golf either. <laughs> I tried to get him a couple of times, and he would get out there a little bit. But he was a team sport kind of guy, and uh, so uh, so I I. Uh, that's how I got into the golf. What was your first impression of Artie Hubbard? Well, I met him at Del Mar Racetrack. And I was with a group of girls. We were there for opening day. This is when I lived in Corona Del Mar, and we had a big group. And I had known that he and my husband at the time were um, working on a deal. And somebody said, Artie Hubbard. And I said, oh, where is he? And so I walked over and I introduced myself and he was in the director's room. And, and that was the first time I met him. And, and, you know, this was, oh, 20, uh, probably 22 years ago, I'm guessing. And of course he was a major force, like he still is, but, uh, that's, that is the first time I met him. And then, uh, the second time was when I came down here, my friend Donna Abel asked if I wanted to play golf at Bighorn. And I said, you know, I would love to. I had heard that the mountain course, because that's all that was here at the time, was a difficult course, maybe not that great. You know, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I, I want to go play. So I played it and I said, I don't know what these people are talking about. This is a fabulous course. This is a great course. And um, so that was my first experience. And then, you know, I met D again and I said, this is, you know, I thanked him for, you know, for having me out and, and, uh, just enjoyed it thoroughly. And you played a lot of golf then every chance you could, I guess. I, I had, and up until then I was uh, fortunate enough to, um, play in a couple of us amateurs and a lot of mid ams and, and 
uh, just had a very, very good time. And golf has afforded me the opportunity to meet some wonderful people, you know, D being one of them, um, but got to meet Arnold Palmer and play golf with Arnold. And Vince Gill is a good friend of mine now, but met him through, through golf. That is the beauty of it. It's, it's great to be able to be competitive and do something competitive and enjoy yourself. And especially when you excel like you have, it's even more fun. But, but you do meet some great people. It, it opens up. You learn a lot about somebody on a golf course. You sure do. And so uh, I, I think that's, that's what it is now, especially as we move on with our golf careers, whatever they may be. It's the camaraderie that means as much as anything else. When you're out there playing. And, and I've met uh, most of my friends and uh, very long, long-term friends are through golf. And they've stuck. And it's just that's what um, I, I love most about the game is that you can travel all over the world. You can, you're always in a beautiful spot. You're having fun. And generally, you're having fun sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes the game can get very frustrating, as you know. We all know. Anybody that's played golf long enough knows that you're going to have great days and you're going to have not-so-great days. But any day out on the golf course is a but treasure. But you certainly see the best real estate in the world Yes. when you're yep. out playing golf. Mm-hmm. But the golf courses, we get to see some really great places. Right. What brings you to the desert, then? At what oh. point do you come over here? Okay, so... Um, my husband and I had a second home in La Quinta, at La Quinta Country Club, actually. And so we had decided to separate. And I said, well, then let me go down to the desert. I'd never lived here. I'd been here on vacation. At the time, I belonged to the quarry. And so I came down here to the desert. My son had graduated from high school. And uh, I came down here and really, really enjoyed living here. And this was November of 98. So um, again, I come up here with my friend Donna and come up to Bighorn and um, played. And and Dee said to me, he said, you know, if you're going to end up here in the desert, you know, here he is, the consummate salesman. You might think about joining Bighorn because the quarry is just a golf club where Bighorn is more of a, you know, you want to say country club, but it's, it's still, even though it's Bighorn Golf Club, it has so many more amenities. He said, because in February, you're going to have to own property. So I took that to heart and I joined right away. So that's how I came here. And so I was living in La Quinta and was a member here and a member at the quarry. And it was perfect because I was right in the middle. So I played both, both courses. So that worked out really well. And, uh, so that's how I ended up here. And again, I think, as you say, the consummate salesman, but it's also true. And I tell people this all the time. There's a lot of developments. There's a lot of great golf courses in the Valley, but this is a community. This has really become a community where people actually live here and interact socially with each other. And the options, of course, are, are good and great. But um, most places you go play golf and then you leave. Right, right. And here, you don't want to leave. It's, um, it's been such a life-changing thing for me to be here at Bighorn. Um, first of all, I met my husband, Kurt, 
here. We, uh, he had been building houses for uh, a group called WoWAM, <laughs> which was Jim Gagan <laughs> and Ray Harvey, right? And so they had the, their first open house of a spec house. So I was down here with a uh, group. Oh, obviously, I was living down here in La Quinta, but I had a group of my girlfriends, and we said, you know, I said, let's go, let's go up to this open house. It should be, should be really fun. And so we decided to do that. And we came up and uh, to the house, and actually, I saw Kurt standing. He's you know six four, and uh, looked. This was twenty years ago, and saw him, and I thought, oh man, he's pretty cute. And then I thought, oh, he's probably married, or you know, he's too young, or whatever. And anyways, we ended up talking that night, and um, I had we were talking, and I looked at him. Because uh, he said, oh, I'm the builder. And I said, you're Whitney's dad. Now Whitney is his oldest daughter. And he looked at me and like, how do you know Whitney? Well, I had done with my friend Donna, I had done Whitney's and her good friend Beth's hair the night before because they were going to like an eighth grade dance. So I had met Whitney before I even met Kurt. So that was, I thought, well, things, things are... There's a message here. There is, there is. So... Uh, Met him that night, and we started dating. Took a little convincing on my part because he figured that I might not be interested in him, which I was. And anyways, we worked through that. You know, Donna and, and Norma Maddie, who was another dear friend, they went knocking on the trailer door and said, here, you better call her. She would like to, to you know, see you. And so he did, and then that's it. How many years ago? And that was over 20 years ago. And we've been together, I know. And a great couple. Oh, thank you. Sure. Thank you. And you know what? I'm really, really happy. I have like, I call them my bonus daughters because I have two, Whitney and Jesse. And then Travis is my son. And we all are uh, a really, really good blended family. And I'm very blessed to have that. And family support system to begin yes. with, but yep. also family mm -hmm. is, I know that's important to you. Very. I know it's important to him. And to find somebody that where you can put those two things together is pretty yeah, special. Because it doesn't always happen. It, it's, it, it can be difficult, but I'm, I'm grateful and I thank God every day that I have, have my family. And now you're at Bighorn. Mm-hmm. Um, you're getting married to Kurt. Yeah, well, yep, I'm at Bighorn. And actually, before we get married, um, I do, with my partner, Elizabeth Benton, we do a couple of developments build some houses. Well, Kurt's the builder and we were the developers. So, um, so Kurt became the, the, the builder, but I had also started working with Kurt. Um, when we met, he was on his own. He had worked for his father here in the desert since 1977. His father was a, a developer and a contractor and built a lot of the buildings like on El Paseo and a lot of housing developments and commercial stuff. And so, uh, he, he had been on his own, but he uh, needed a little help with the the office, you know, the books. And so I said, well, I can do that because I had worked for a general contractor um, before when I lived in Orange County. So kind of got things organized on, on my home computer and then ended up, he we got a little office and then moved on to the office that he is in today um, on El Paseo. So I helped him do all that. So... So then we, we do the development, 
Uh, and that's speaking of, uh, oh, well, Ron Snow, whom you, we, he did a podcast earlier. Uh, he ended up, he and Aviva bought the house that the first development that we did together. So that, at that time, that we, Kurt and I weren't married yet. That was in 2005. Uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. And we were living together. We actually had moved up to Bighorn in 2003, Kurt and I together. He sold his house. I sold my house. And together we, we bought the house that we live in today. And uh, so we were, we were up here. Yeah, I was diagnosed on February 17th. 2005. When you're this point in your life, things are going absolutely terrific. I mean, you've found a, a life partner. Um, you're doing working together. You're living together. Everything. I mean, you got to believe this is as good as it gets. I mean, this is really something special. Your families are together. And then you get the, this news. Tell me, what, what goes through your mind? How does it, I mean... How did you feel about it then? Well, the first thing, you know, when the doctor tells you that, you're thinking, whoa, really? Uh, you're shocked, anybody is. And um, I'm thinking, okay, you know, where, where do we go from here? What do we do? So uh, I get home and I tell Kurt, because I went to the doctor. I, I, I was so naive in, in that. I've been healthy all my life. So when the doctor called me back because I had gone for an, an ultrasound, which I requested, because I thought something's just not right. I was feeling some pains. I thought, no, something's, something's not right. So when they called me back, I had no idea. I mean, I should have realized. Now I do. But I didn't realize. So when he told me, I just went by myself. And um, so the doctor set me up at Eisenhower to get all my tests and everything. So I told Kurt. And he, he, he was shocked, too. He wasn't quite sure how to react either. I mean, hugs, some tears. You know, we held on to each other. And I said, OK. I got on my computer. And that weekend, learned everything I could learn in that amount of time about breast cancer and what it meant. And it you know, where do I go from here? I wanted to at least be equipped with some questions to ask the doctor, which I was seeing on Wednesday. So we go into the, and I have like six people with me, of course, you know, I have a whole team. We go into the doctor's office and I had not met my oncologist and he walks in and we're all sitting there and he walks in, he looks around and he goes, okay, which one's the patient? <laughs> Raise my hand. And he goes, okay. So then he went through the protocols and what he recommended, which was uh, chemo, mastectomy, and radiation. And I said, well, when would you like me to start? And he said, what are you doing this afternoon? I must have had this look on my face of like <gasps> shock. Or, and he goes, or we can wait till tomorrow. And I said, okay, let's wait till tomorrow. So we did, and I started the next day. Started with my chemo and did that, and, and, and had so much support from so many people, so many friends, people I didn't even know, bighorn people that would just stop by, drop off food, would drop off a note, send flowers. Send, I mean, the, I, I was overwhelmed, and I still get very emotional about it when I'm, I think about the love that was given to me and shown to me by, by my friends, by my family, and people I didn't even know. It, it was truly remarkable. And um, 
uh, that helped me so much get through. I know. can only imagine. And sometimes, Sylvie, at a place like this, people look at the surroundings and what we're so fortunate to have and some material things. But there's a outpouring of support in this community, whatever the situation might be. And you're an example of that that people really genuinely care about each other. And you don't even know that until, unfortunately, sometimes things like this do happen. Right. But that support system, along with all the medical attention and the good doctors and everything else, that has to be so important in getting one through something like this. It, it, it truly is. And uh, one of my best friends, Vicki Shawn's, came out of that experience because I, I had met her, but I didn't really know her. And she, she was one of those that would drop by and, and we developed such close friendship because of that. And going through the, the process of the chemo and then the mastectomy and then radiation, it was not quite a year of of all those treatments. And at the end of the year, I, you know, I felt strong, I felt good, and I kept getting stronger and stronger. You know, when you just think, when you think you're strong, you get stronger. And, and that strength not only comes from the physical part, but also the mental part and, and the heart part. And you've always been a doer. I mean, you've, you went through your life and all the things that you've accomplished and taken on and everything. This, you were put to the test here. And a positive attitude, I would think, also helps. Oh, tremendously. It, it does. And I, I, knew, uh, I knew enough about my disease um, to know that it, it, it could it could be it could be good it could be you know I was stage three and it was in my lymph nodes but still it could be good and it and it was good it was good for you know 14 and a half years it was at it was at bay and and it's, it's when you're going through that period and then I want to have the rest of what you've just referred to but as you're going through this period uh, was there any time then where you just said, you know, I, I just don't know? I mean, or did you just maintain this positive attitude about, you know, I've got a great support system, I'm going to beat this, and I'm going to move forward? Well, I think there's always, there is doubt. But most of all, there was always, always hope. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would talk to God and I'd say, okay, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not. But... You know, does it have to be right now? <laughs> you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see the kids get older. I'd like to meet my grandchildren. I want, I want that. I want that. And, um, and fortunately, I, I, I got that. And faith is important. Yes, and it was a very important for me. And, um, and in in this whole time, um, Kurt was by my side the whole time, and we weren't married yet at the time. And he was there, and then, uh, kind of how where how that evolved was that we went to Hawaii in January after I had completed everything just to ah, take a breath, and that's when he asked me to marry him, and that was like on a Tuesday, and we got married Saturday. Kids all flew over, I had a couple friends come over, and we got married, and and that was 
that was it. What a great story. And now you've already alluded to, this has been 14 and a half years. Mm-hmm. Now. And now I was just recently um, diagnosed that um, my cancer has come back and it's metastasized. And I'm stage four. It's in my bones and it's in my lymph nodes. Um, but having said that, it sounds really bad and it's, it's not great, but there are a lot of bullets in the gun, as the doctor said, that we're going to fire at this. I'm on an oral chemo and I'm on a hormone blocker. And um, I, I'm hoping that it will work. And I think there's evidence that it is working. Um, this whole second diagnosis started with a checkup with Hugh Greenway, because when the doctors came up here this year, um, they found a melanoma on my shoulder. They got it out. It was in situ, not a problem. They got everything, but I have to go be. I have to be checked every three months. So I was down in Del Mar and. Uh, staying, which I do in September. So I went to Hugh and I, for my checkup and he goes, everything's looking really good. You, you look great. And I said, well, I have this mole on my scalp. Would you check it? So he did. And he said, yeah, I want to biopsy this. So he biopsied it. And that's how I was found the second diagnosis. Hugh talked to me, Hugh told me, and this was October 1st of this year. And then um, I had another one developing on the other side of my scalp, and they left that one. And now that I've been on my chemo, now for, um, I go three weeks on, one week off, three weeks on, and I'm on my second three weeks, and the one on my uh, scalp is gone. So that's, that's promising, very promising. So um, it's something that we're going to manage. It'll never go away. I will always have it, but we can manage it. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to manage it and live my life as I have. What impresses me, first of all, there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast that don't know the situation. So for your bravery and for your honesty, I thank you because as you know from previous experiences for yourself, this kind of honesty and this kind of bravery can help other people. And to be checked, to be diligent, to be checked as much as you possibly can. And we're so fortunate in this community that we have a Hugh Greenway to start with. Yes, but then we Secondly, are. this resource that comes here once a year to do these tests and people who, if you're not taking advantage of it and you're listening to this podcast, when it comes up this year, take advantage of it. Absolutely. Because it saves lives. Yes, it does. And, and I look back at photos of the mole where my melanoma was. And I would never have thought that it was anything because it looked, it was, to me, looked very benign. It was flat. It wasn't too misshapen. It really wasn't misshapen. But I look at old pictures and there it is, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, it was there, but it didn't manifest itself until this year because I go, when they come up, I believe me, I go and have, I'm checked. Absolutely. And, and I think, and, and another thing is that, you know, people listen to your bodies. Listen, you know your body better than anybody. Listen to it. If something is different, I mean, it's not that you have to go around, you know, every tiny little thing, but if it bothers you enough that you're thinking on it, 
go have it checked. Don't ignore it. And again, you know, when you have the opportunity, as you've said before, if you can catch it, there is treatment. There, I mean, there still is treatment, and with treatment, there's hope, and with hope, there's recovery, and I mean, it all goes. But but the first step is to be diligent about getting diagnosed. Right, right, exactly, and and then getting your treatment, like you said, which I'm doing now. Now, the situation with BAM, and this has become. How did it start? I know Dee was involved in it at the very start. I want to know how it started and then what, how it's gone to this point. Uh, I know now Debbie Artoon has taken over to some degree with BAM now, and I'm certainly in the future going to have a podcast with her and a discussion with her. But I'd really like to know the genesis of this whole idea that now has become something that's raised close to $9 million dollars. Uh, in the community? Uh, It started uh, with, I played in a tournament, they used to have it here, uh, for Susan G. Komen, which is a a wonderful organization. And Phyllis Duncan and Kathy Stever, they would run this tournament. After, in 2006, um, I said, you know, I'd like to help out and whatever I can do, having just completed my, you know, a year of, of treatments and all that. And they said, well, maybe you could raise, try to raise some money. Cause they had raised about anywhere, you know, about seven, $8,000 in for Susan G. Komen. So I said, okay. So I went to D and I said, there's this tournament and it's called rally for a cure. And he had no idea about anything uh, of that any of this was going on. And he asked how much they'd raised. And I told them, how told him, and you know him, he said, well, if you can't raise at least $25,000, we're going to cancel the whole damn thing. So I got my marching orders and I was trying to come up with some ideas of how to raise money. So we were at the, the old poor house, which on the patio, which was the site for many, many wonderful conversations. And I uh, said, and Dee was there, and Joan Dale, and Bat and Joni were there, and Masterson. And I said, what do you feel about, you know, selling uh, teas? You know, what's your, what are your thoughts? You know, we sell them for, I don't know, $500, $1,000. Your name goes on the tea, and you get recognized. And um, they, they thought that was a good idea. And Bat steps up and says, I'll buy every single tea. And then you go out and resell them. So right then we had $18,000 and I hadn't done anything. Right. So that ended up, we raised about $60,000 that year for Susan G. Komen. And the money went off to Susan G. Komen. And that was the end of that. It was like, okay. We didn't know where the money was going. It's prob- most likely stayed in Riverside County, but wasn't sure where it was going. So then the next year, Kathy and Phyllis say, would you like to run the tournament? And I said, I would love to, but I know that you've been doing this for a number of years. This is what I would like to do, and I would like to change it. So all the money we raise stays right here in the Valley, and we, and we change it up a bit. They said, fine, no problem. So that was in 2007, and that's when uh, 
BAM really took off. Again, we met, I asked my friends here to help. There were, we had like 20, 25 people absolutely would want to help. And so again, out on the poorhouse patio, we're talking and Joan Dale Hubbard says, well, what about the selling caddies, auctioning off the caddies somehow? Uh, because you had to take a caddy because it was a tournament. So we mulled it over and that's how the caddy auction started, where you would have to, you know, you paddle up, you buy a caddy and they get to hit one shot. So the first year, Joan Dale says, okay, we'll have it at my house. Well, the wind came up because it's in springtime and we had to move it to the clubhouse. Well, the caddies are in the men's locker room, hanging out there, and we kind of, we divided the tables and the chairs up and the caddies came down the center and then up at the front by the fireplace on the, in the old clubhouse, Tony Magnemi, whom I went to high school with, by the way, was our auctioneer. So these caddies come out and we have no idea how this is going to go over. We're thinking, we started the bidding at $200 a caddy and we're thinking, okay, if we can, you know, $500 a caddy, 600, we didn't know. Well, the first caddy went for $1,200. And we just, we were like over the moon. We couldn't believe it. Well, so this, this now mind you, we have like 30 some caddies. Well, it takes a while. Well, Bobby Bullet is in the back serving cocktails to these guys. And they are nervous as all get out because they've never done it. They don't. Well, by the time the last one gets out there, he's had a few drinks. And he gets up there. Well, he starts coming down the, the walkway. He takes, starts taking his shirt off. He's winging it around his head. And the women actually are going crazy. They think, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they were hooping and hollering. Well, then he starts, you know, going a little bit crazier. And I run out onto the dance floor and say, no, that's, that's the end of that one. Stop, stop, stop. And anyways, through that, the whole sponsorships, the caddy auction, all the whole thing, we raised $360,000. And that's, that's how the caddy auction started. So I have to thank Joan Dale for that. Well, the Hubbards always come through in a big way. Right, right. So that's the first one. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, this just continues to grow. It does. And it continues uh, throughout the years. We have added events. So um, Kay Truitt said we need to, she called it a pre-party or a, 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 a party where you come in, you have a few auction items, it lets people know, and it gives us our seed money to go on. So that was the premise of the silent auction and the, um, the night of miracles, which is what we've had in the past. And it was very successful people. Everything was donated. And that was, um, huge to have some great items. I mean, one Pete Sampras twice has donated his time. I mean, that's huge. And so that was, uh, the start of our of our auction and uh, a great fundraiser. So we, we did that. We did um, the uh, the auction grew and grew and grew. And we've had it at no, numerous homes. That's where we always had it. We had it at the tennis estate, which uh, Amy and Barry Baker own now. Um, the Ma uh, Mathesons owned it. They had it there too. And just had some fabulous things with Goldie Hawn 
and Kurt Russell, they donated their stuff. And that was the biggest year we ever had because that went three times, uh, dinner with them, and we raised 300000 just just on that one item, sold three times. So uh, that, was, that was some of the really fun, fun events. So it starts Saturday night. This, yes, it starts this Saturday, the 23rd, with a miracle on El Paseo. And that's when the shops on El Paseo, that's the higher end, um, right there at the corner, um, they they contacted us 12 years ago and wanted to make uh, BAM uh, the charitable component for their big grand opening when that happened 12 years ago. And, of course, we said yes, and it's just evolved. And now it's a huge community effort. It's it's changed in it into instead of just a fashion shopping experience. Now it's a whole f- kid family event. They have the Christmas tree. We have Santa. We're going to have a parade. I mean, it's the Ferris wheel. It's all about the community and the families and getting down there and just having fun. And again, what started is as a, a bighorn kind of event. Mm-hmm. This is no. This is. This is an event now that affects both with results and in every other way the entire community right. here in, in the desert. Right. So that's that's the first one we have event, and it's um, I can remember the um, the city saying, "Well, we're not too sure. You know, we wanted to close the block off, and they no, no, we have to keep it open." And they're not, well, now they they close the whole thing down. So it's it's they've uh, embraced it. Tremendously. I mean, they really. When it's you know, we have television coverage and it's entertainment. It's, yes, I mean, it's it's full. It's, it's all. Full. Yeah, it's, it's really a fun stuff. night. So, so we we had that. Then through some of the articles in the paper, uh, I had a woman contact me and Susan Goldfine, and she asked if uh, we ever did any card game uh, fundraiser. And I said, no, we hadn't, we haven't, and we hadn't done that. Well, she took the bulls by the horn, and she just did it. And she started organizing Game Day for Life. And now, uh, unfortunately, uh, she's a breast cancer survivor, and unfortunately, a year and a half ago, uh, she succumbed. And uh, she's no longer with us, but her vision continues on, and we have Game Day for Life at the Heather James Gallery and that is this year, uh, well, it will be in January uh, on the 20th. You've got some, you got tennis. Isn't tennis a part of some of the things that you do? That too? is, yes. So now um, what we have done, and Debbie has been, Debbie Artoon has been a big part of this, is getting uh, tennis and some, you know, we're going to do pickleball and the cards in all, all of, because it was just golf. And that's kind of the way it started. And it just, Kind of went that way, but now we've got way more people involved with it. And this year, what we're going to do is instead of having um, the Night of Miracles, we're going to have the caddy auction and a silent auction. We'll have a few live auction items and then the golf tournament, but we're going to include men this year. So that is our big change, and we're really looking forward to it because so many of the things that we do. As far as uh, raise money for us, as far as transportation, the big true beam um, uh, radiation, uh, giant, I mean, that's huge, at Eisenhower, the, the equipment, the piece of equipment we uh, contributed a million dollars to. And all of that is for all cancers. You know, and the Pendleton Foundation that we support, 
That's all cancers. So it's not just breast cancer, even though that's how it started. Um, a lot of our money does go for equipment and updating the existing equipment, but we do, we do encompass all, all cancers as well. So we're excited to have the men. I'm excited to go. Good, good. So tell, tell me too, the people that are listening, if they want to support these um, various events, if they want to get more information about BAM, if they want to uh, get more involved themselves, how does that happen? You can always go to our website, bighornbam.net, and that has all of our information on it. Um, it does not have about the golf tournament, though, because that is not a public, per se, event, mm -hmm. because of, the, you know, it's here. Uh, we do have teams, you know, guests uh, from other clubs that participate because they've heard about it, and they, they're more than welcome. The key is to know about the caddy auction, because as, as you know, and uh, most people that have participate or have their, you know, their wives or girlfriends or whatever participate, know that the, those caddies, they go for a nice, nice penny. And which is good because all the money we raise there is, uh, goes to the transportation of the three vehicles that we have purchased, uh, for those chemotherapy and radiation patients that need it. So that's, um, that's not on the website, but they can certainly, uh, I mean, ask me, ask yes. Debbie Artoon, ask Kathy Johnson. Great. Yeah. Because I know that there are people, and, and we see this all the time, there are new members that don't necessarily know the history of some of these events. Uh, There's some people even outside of the community that would like to become involved, and especially like Saturday night to go down to that event and stuff like that. We certainly want to have them get involved if they possibly can. And it definitely has a life of its own now. I mean, this has become, did you ever envision that this is what it was going to become? <laughs> never, never. It was started as a, a, a ladies' golf day. That's golf tournament. That's what it started as. And for it to grow into such a community endeavor and to help so many people, um, at the Lucy Kirchie Cancer Center, they see over 25,000 patients a year. And every single person that goes in there as touched by the equipment that BAM has provided. Uh, they have, we've given over 13,000 rides to people that need to get to their chemotherapy or radiation uh, to, to see how much BAM has really helped so many people within the community is truly astounding. And it's, it's all the, the Bighorn members that are so generous. And I, I say this every year, and I mean, I say this every day. I mean it. I truly mean it. I, this would not be possible without the members here at Bighorn um, and the community as well, but especially the very generous members. They can choose any charity, and they get asked a lot. I know they do. And for them to choose Bighorn Bam to give some of their dollars to, I'm very, very blessed, and, and we all are, and, and I'm very grateful. And, and again, I think sometimes from the outside, there is, well, you know, people here have a great life, and, but people here give back. Oh. They give back all the time. And, uh, and I think that that needs to be said. And it, and it does support things that are outside of the community that, that affect everybody in the desert. Right. Because uh, the reason that I found out about the need for transportation in 
many have heard this story before, but I think it's worth telling, is when I was going through my radiation, and I, you see the same people over and over again because you go at it every day at the same time. So you get to know some of the people that are uh, having radiation as well. So uh, there was a gal there, and she asked me what I did for my burns on my skin, and I told her that I was putting aloe vera because I had recently started. I said, I put aloe vera on as soon as I'm done before I get dressed. And she asked me if it was expensive. And so it gave me an insight to her economic situation. So the next day I went and bought a, a big tub of aloe vera at Trader Joe's and brought it to her, but she wasn't there. So I asked Denny, my, uh, the tech, I said, well, where's Alice? And why isn't she here today? And he said, she missed her bus. Well, I couldn't believe it. I, it never dawned on me. As fortunate as I am, I drive down and I drive back. That there are people that couldn't just drive or get back or didn't have any support system. And she took the bus from Indio every day. And so when BAM was started, I asked, um, we had a meeting with Eisenhower and I said, what I would like to do is get a wish list from you of items that you need. I don't. Um, I didn't think it was a great idea just to hand over a check. I wanted specifics, but I had a specific, and I wanted to see if providing transportation was something that could be done and could be provided. And in fact, it did. Uh, it did start, and that was the the whole premise of starting the, the transportation was because of this gal that took a bus from India. You know, I know that, again, I wouldn't expect, but the first time I really had a chance to talk to you, I was coming into an event here that, for, the, for BAM, and this was probably eight years ago or nine years ago, and I said, you know, there's a lot of people that do great charitable work. There really are. And there's a lot of charities that are really worthwhile. But I said to you that night, you do this for the right reasons. And I commend you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions that we normally ask most of the people that come in here for one of these podcasts. And one of those is what person or persons, people have had the greatest influence on you in your life? Well, that's... Uh, it an interesting question. I think looking back on my life and the in the important parts that kept me somewhat grounded, as grounded as maybe I could be, have been, um, my trainer Bert Phillips, who uh, was out at the stables, and I mean he taught me uh, about horsemanship and about caring about horses and about. Uh, responsibilities and the fact that having another live thing that needs you to take care of it, uh, that I think he, he was very influential and, and plus he taught me how to ride. And then, um, my minister in my church, Jim Long, again, that was a, a, a going, you know, being a teenager, uh, my brother had gone off to college. So it was my mother and I, and my mother was working there wasn't a lot of, uh, I don't know, there was stability, but it was just, I was sort of 
freelancing. You know, I was kind of out there and on my own, so to speak. And um, I, there was a lot of uh, a togetherness and love that I felt. So and we think, need an anchor sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you look for? What qualities do you most admire in your friends? Oh, um, laughter, honesty, the ability to care for others, and being able to share, uh, uh, being able to bond. Women um, are great communicators of their hearts, more so than men. Now, my best friend on the whole planet is my husband, Kurt. And I want to be with him more than anyone, but when we're talking girlfriends. Um, and I, I look at that, the, the love in, that we share. I think so. What would you tell the 20-year-old Selby? <laughs> well, I would tell her to slow down a bit. Don't be so impulsive. Don't jump into things so quickly. Don't make decisions so quickly. And I think I would say listen to those people that are trying to help you. Usually they are older than you are. And listen to them because they have the wisdom and the experience. And most people have a hard time with listening to that. They, as I did... I had to experience them for myself. I would say, take the time and listen to those people that have lived life and have experienced life because they truly know. Selby, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in today and doing this and sharing your life experiences. I speak for the whole community. We wish you good health. You've impacted so many people. When you can live the life that you've led, which is, by all accounts, excellent, it's so important, I think, when you're able to pay it forward and to be able to impact as many people as you have. And I thank you so much. And thanks for today. Thank you, Marty. Selby's story is certainly both emotional and powerful in a way that makes us all take a look at our own mortality and the grace and attitude that we should all strive to have when we deal with our lives. The honesty and vulnerability in which she has shared her story is a lesson to all of us. And thanks to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wines for your support of the Bighorn Podcast. We will look forward to bringing you another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories.